So tonight we're leaving the sermon of Peter behind, and we're going to move into the response to this sermon. And uh, Peter shows us that true pe- true preaching includes using the Scripture. We uh, we know very clearly that that his uh, use of the Book of Joel, the use of the Psalms. They're there to lead people to Christ. That was his mission in all this. So he's using the Old Testament to bring people to the Lord. He also, at at the end, includes an indictment to encourage people to consider their lives and, and any sin that they have. And even gets personal in his sermon that you killed the Messiah. You did this. So after completing the study last week, I I went home, and normally when I go home, I wind down for a little while after doing this, and the way I study is I'll write each verse out on a piece of paper, and I'll write this verse, and I'll write this one, and I'll get to reading through it. I think, well, there's only 11 verses left. I'll just hit the high spots and, and finish this chapter up next Wednesday. And, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to going deeper into the books of Acts and seeing the apostles do healings. The first deacons are made. More sermons are given. And I just really look forward to that. So I thought, I'll get through these 11 verses. And um, so tonight, we're going to cover verses 37 and 38. (laughs) Not 11 of them, just two. Um, it's utterly amazing how what you intend to happen in your life doesn't matter. Our Heavenly Father has a plan. So there's absolutely too much information in these two verses for me to just move on and hit high spots. So I'm not going to beat around the bush with these two verses. We're just going to beat these bushes into dust. And uh, we'll finish this chapter whenever the good Lord decides that it's time to finish it. So if you would, please stand, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 37 and 38. This is God's inerrant word. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, this is your word. Please use it to guide us in the way, in the way of your Son, Jesus Christ. We should be striving to be more and more like him daily, and we ask that you use this word to to help us do that. Help us keep your word, Father. We want to hear what you have to say to us, and just ask that you take the service over with your spirit. You give the words that you would have spoken, and give us the ears to hear and understand. We thank you once again for all you've done and are doing. And will do, Father. 
We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. So I, I thought that maybe the good Lord will let me live long enough to finish Acts, and if I do them two verses at a time, I'll be 127, I think, when I get done. So. Trying to be funny there, I'm sorry. So verse 37 read, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? What a question, right? The verbiage pierced to the heart indicates a number of things. Of course, it, it refers to the guilt that each of the people in the street who were asking this question that they had within them. How or why would they repent if they didn't have this level of guilt? Why would they change? There's other points here to be made. Before this point in time, they had not contemplated the fact that they had rejected Jesus Christ. Before this point in time, they had not considered themselves to even be a part of the crucifixion of Christ. We weren't the one that drove the nails. We weren't the one that held the spear. We weren't the ones that wove a crown of thorns. We didn't even spit on him. We didn't pull his beard. We didn't do any of that. I'm not guilty. Their silence during the proceeding screamed their guilt in what happened there. Today, every one of us is faced with the question, what are you going to do about Jesus? We all carry that burden. The saved carry it lightly. His yoke is easy, right? The unsaved have a really heavy burden to bear. Remaining silent and not addressing this issue of guilt, we're rejecting him the same way that they did. The same thing they did if we reject Christ. Same guilt. So then I had to ask myself, how is it here in this place that these people are suddenly pierced to the heart? Was it just these words that Peter spoke and a few Old Testament verses that he used? These verses have been taught in the temple many, many times. And many of these listeners have heard it repeatedly. But they never had this impact. John 16, verses 7 through 9, informed us that this was going to happen. And it reads, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And here we have Christ talking to the apostles. And he's telling them, I'm going to depart from here. I'm going to leave you. So he tells them, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, but concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The advocate spoken of here is also called the helper in the New American Standard, and I think either interpretation is, is more than proper. But this is the Holy Spirit's work. 
the Holy Spirit at work using this sword of the word that the listeners have just heard have pierced their very souls. They've been penetrated. Hebrews 4.12, which seems like yesterday, but some weeks ago uh, I taught from this pulpit on the word of God and we covered this verse in some depth. But Hebrews 4.12 tells us that for the word of God is living and acting, active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's talking about this book right here that I have one laying around the house in different places. And we really take it for granted what we're holding in our hand. This is the word of God. He's revealed himself to us in written form. It's been preserved for thousands of years. And it's for us. And for a long time, I wouldn't even pick it up and read it. Many times I had many excuses, but, th but this is the word. One of my favorite verses that, that talks about a similar scenario here is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. And I think I've used this verse before, but it explains what's occurring here even in the Old Testament. It says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. God will put his spirit in you, and he will cause you to walk in his statutes. Interesting words. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearts of many of the people here in the street. And there's no reference to asking people if they would like to ask Jesus to come into their heart. There's no altar call. There's no raising of the hands. <clears throat> and there's no 15-word cliche prayer handled here. What is happening here is the Holy Spirit is taking what the Father has given to the Son. He's claiming his own. There's no decision made here. There's only desperation and a need to escape this feeling of guilt for their sinful ways and they can do nothing but cry out, what shall we do? What shall we do? And isn't it interesting when we look at this verse, Peter started out, and I referenced this a number of times, he started out with men and brothers. He wanted to find some common ground with the people in the streets. We both believe these scriptures. We're brothers. We're, we were all born Jewish. We live here too. And now we have the people in the streets seeking common ground. Men and brothers, what shall we do? change has happened. There's something going on here. Even though there were scoffers that denounced Peter and accused his followers of being drunk, deniers who did not want to hear what was being said, 
the Holy Spirit is not hindered from gathering what is his. He's gathering the elect to believe in Jesus Christ. This is no mere courage of man that caused these listeners to come to belief. This is an internal working of the Holy Spirit that's happening inside these people. This crowd has been brought, many of them, to a, a, a point of desperation. <clears throat> they suddenly realize that their sin is an offense against the holy God. Their new heart is a receptive soul that allows them to see with clarity that they need a Savior. They couldn't see this minutes before that. Minutes before that. They were totally opposed. And now, all of a sudden, here we are. John MacArthur noted in, in his study Bible, in grief, remorse, and intense spiritual conviction, Peter's listeners were stunned by this indictment. And this indictment is they had killed their Messiah. And I think there's more to it than just that. <clears throat> but I can't imagine having waited all these years for the Messiah to come, the thoughts of we hung him on a cross had to be appalling. I mean, how could you, how could you even fathom that? And we've heard these words, what shall we do before? If you will, flip over to Luke chapter 3. Here in this story, we have John the Baptist addressing a multitude, a crowd of people. <clears throat> amongst, amongst this crowd of people are Pharisees. And he ends up calling them a brood of vipers. And, and, and it's, it's just a scene, but the people in the crowd were questioning him. Saying, then what should we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. And there were tax collectors that also came. And they came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. And even soldiers that were there were asking the same question. What should we also do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. Do not extort anyone and be content with your wages. And, it, and it's just, this set of verses has impacted decisions in my life recently. John did not tell them, stop being a tax collector. And he did not tell the soldiers to lay down your arms and find something else to do. He told them, treat your, employee, your employer rightly, and the people you're serving, treat them rightly. And I'll be the first to admit, there's probably a few occupations out there that once you're saved, you're going to have to leave behind. But I don't believe there are many. I believe there are few in numbers, because God needs his people everywhere to spread his gospel. There's a point not long ago where uh, the company that I work for made an announcement that they were going to support this social issue and we're doing this. And some of the training we had to take really made me question some things. And I came home and told Jackie, I said, I'm done. I'm retiring. I'm done. Can't be a part of this. And she talked a little sense back in my head. And I ran across these verses just in my nightly reading. 
this holy irony that I talk about from time to time happened again. And I had never seen that in those verses before. He didn't tell us to quit our job. He told us to spread the gospel. There may come a point in time when I have to address the head management of this company and give them the gospel. I don't know. I don't know how far the agendas get pushed. But the day I have to cross that line in the sand that says this is my moral standard based on the word of God, it'll happen. But not until then. I'll retire when the good Lord tells me it's time. We're to be a witness wherever the Lord puts us in this life. And, and I recognize that the road is rocky. And sometimes we have to absorb those blows. But think about things scripturally before you make a rash decision on whatever you do. If it any, has any leanings at all to be in a major decision, think about it biblically. He gave us this for a reason. There's a lot of answers in here for us. So let me, let me get back to the verse at hand. I apologize. The, uh, the listeners have heard Peter's sermon and are now displaying signs of regeneration. The beginnings of repentance are here. What shall we do, they said. And they're appealing to Peter and the apostles for guidance that will lead them to God's forgiveness. Calvin stated that to be touched with this feeling of sorrow and to show obedience to Peter's counsel is the beginning of repentance, which is the entrance unto godliness. The same people that screamed crucify him were stood idly by and watched it happen. The same people that were minutes ago scoffing at Peter and the apostles. You see, all unbelievers, every one, are guilty of rebellion against God according to Acts chapter 17. And they're guilty of the rejection of Jesus Christ according to John 16. And therefore, when repenting the gospel, I feel like this is exactly the reason that Peter has an indictment for sin here. The words that any believer should most want to hear from an unbeliever are these very same words, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? It's unfortunate today that there are so many churches out there that never hear words like that spoken in them. And they have pastors in them that wouldn't know how to answer the question. It's saddening. Thousands of thousands and thousands of people just in one church in some instances. The teachings at these church churches are predominantly self-help and rarely if ever teach directly from the scripture. But yet we're told clearly in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word whether we want to or not. To do it in season or out of season. I mean that's not even missing the mark. It's being way out in left field somewhere. However, we know that the spirit-filled Peter has a response for these listeners' question. So in verse 38, he responds with, And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Peter mentioned six topics in this verse, four of them directly and two are implied. One is becoming a Christian is implied here. Two is repentance, three is baptism, four is forgiveness, five is the Holy Spirit. All of those are directly mentioned. And the last one is belief, to believe, obviously implied in these verses. So I'm going to discuss all these. And I'm going to start with one becoming a Christian. Christian, What is that? What does it look like? The people in the street ask this important question, what shall we do? They're obviously feeling this guilt. They've been associated with the execution of their Messiah. They feel certain anguish. They know that there may be a coming punishment for rejecting Christ at this point. What shall we do? We don't, we don't want to face that. They never considered the idea that Jesus may not have been lying about being the Messiah. They hung him on the tree for blasphemy. And they just simply pronounced him as guilty and went about their merry way. And now they're faced with the sudden fact that not only did we kill the Messiah, he has come from, he's up from the dead, he's risen. And if he's truly the Messiah, he's here somewhere, and I'm guilty. What shall we do? How did they change so quickly? Remains a question. Do we really believe that these quotes are scripture? Well, yes. With the help of the Holy Spirit, this high-level teaching? Yes. So here at the end of Peter's sermon, we see the founding of the first church, right? People that did not know God at all are becoming the first church by the thousands. These people did not revere Jesus as Lord and Christ, and now suddenly they do. Something changed. We remember a change in the apostles when the Holy Spirit came. They were suddenly bold and courageous, no longer fearful. They knew they had the wrath of the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders to potentially face if they came out preaching Christ's gospel. They didn't care. Something changed. These people are undergoing a similar scenario. Their thinking, their outlook, their perspectives have suddenly changed. The listeners in the street are aware that they are being dealt with by a power greater than themselves at this point. Not foolish. They know where they were a few minutes ago. And now they can't hesitate to say, what shall we do? You see, we do not simply take up Christianity as though it's going to baseball practice. We don't take it up like I want to start fishing today. Christianity takes us up. It grabs us and takes us up. It's not something that you do. It's something that's done to you. And this something is the Holy Spirit driving these scriptures into the minds of the listeners and their hearts and consciences are pierced 
<clears throat> the Holy Spirit causes us to recognize the relevance of Jesus Christ in our own lives. How does this apply to me? And all of a sudden, you realize that I'm guilty before him. The Holy Spirit leads us to realize we're actively involved not only in the crucifixion, but all the sinful nature of things. Because if we break one commandment, we're guilty of breaking them all, right? And we, as a people, suddenly became utterly concerned about Jesus when we couldn't have cared less a few minutes ago. We're concerned about our union with him. We suddenly realize that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, as is voiced in verse 36. We see that we've been fighting against God and have rejected Jesus. The mind is now open to what has been foregone previously, and we just skipped over the Lord of Lords and moved on. When people are under this effectual calling and become convicted or pierced to the heart, then suddenly they realize that there's no neutral ground. I'm either for him or I'm against him. There's no safe space here. I've either got to do A or I've got to do B. And they're convicted at the heart. And the elect have no choice here. Jesus is their answer. I mean, the largest sin of all that we will ever have or see is that when someone has no need for Christ in their life, and they die with that same belief. They're without hope. So this change we've been talking about is essential in the process of conversion. In this change, you're no longer ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and to the, to the Greek. Now, if you remember or not, but Luke opens up <clears throat> the book of Acts to this Theophilus guy that we really don't know a whole lot about. And the first things he gives him is the gospel. I composed all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented. And it goes on. He pours the gospel out there first thing. He's not ashamed. This is what this letter is about. And Luke, obviously, he, he was not ashamed. If you do not speak about Jesus, but simply talk about good ideas, great morals, decent thoughts, this is not Christianity. Christianity is about him. It's about Jesus. Good thoughts, good deeds, morals, those are all a part of it. But that's not the end matter of this subject. Jesus Christ is. When you're truly converted, he's not only in the highest position in the church. He's in the highest position in your life. Lord of Lords, right? And the change is referred to throughout the Bible in different ways. John 3, 3, we, we hear about Nicodemus and Christ tells him, you must be born again. This is it. You must be born again. This is the change. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. 
Ephesians 4, 22, to put it quite simply, says to lay aside the old man and put on the new man. This is a change. And all this is to simply discuss the occurrence of becoming a Christian at this point. So when you think about the person walking down an aisle and saying that 15-word prayer, and then going back to their life as they always have, it would appear to me that a proclaimed conversion of this type lacks validity of any kind because there has to be a change. People, we have to be changed. In every biblical conversion, an obvious change has occurred. And how can one be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and not have a change occur? And some may argue that it's too hard in this world to live a Christian life. I've heard it before. My argument would be that these listeners right here, they had some pretty hard challenges themselves. They were part of a rigorous legalistic culture and religion. Fiercely nationalistic. Dead, fast, Jewish, because they had the Romans occupying their land. They had publicly rejected Jesus and may have even been actively involved in his crucifixion. And now they've got to admit that they're wrong. Admitting that you're wrong is one of the hardest things I think we have to do. But once you do it a time or two, it gets a whole lot easier. And now Peter calls on them to forsake all this. Repent and embrace Jesus as your Messiah, even at the risk of being outcast by their families, potentially executed for their conversion. <clears throat> the next item that Peter brings to our attention is repentance. And if you ask random Christians in this world, what does the word repent mean? You would hear a whole lot about how it's, uh, I'm sorry that I did these things, and it's an apology, or I really shouldn't have, and I have regret. And those answers are partially true. But repent means a whole lot more than that. It falls short to say it's just an apology. Webster's defines repent as to feel conscious stricken. A feeling of regret over past action or inaction as to change one's mind about what action should have been done. To feel so contrite over one's sins as to change one's ways and habits is in the Webster's Dictionary. Sometimes I look these words up and I'm like, well, where's the biblical one? Even Webster's recognizes that repentance has a change attached to it. There's a 180 degree shift, a turn that happens. And we should be turning toward being more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. Calvin stated that repentance signifies the conversion of the mind, that the whole man may be renewed and made another man. And I thought, the mind, I've never really heard it. The mind? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. It changes the way we think. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones has stated that the first thing the Holy Spirit does to people when he comes upon them in this powerful manner is to make them think. Jesus claims repentance for forgiveness of sins in Luke 24, 47. <clears throat> Both John the Baptist and Jesus, Matthew 3, 2 and Matthew 4, 17, called and taught for repentance. The book of Acts repeats this theme numerous times. Chapter 3, 19, 5, 31, 8, 22, 11, 18, 17, 30, 20, 21, 26, 20. All clear pictures of repentance for sins. True repentance hates sin for what it is. It's an affront to God. It's another MacArthur quote. So now we, we've discussed this word repent, and I think we have some understanding there. I think we understand more about the application of the word. The next thing that Peter tells his listeners is that they need to be baptized in Jesus' name. And admittedly, there's a lot of tension around this verse. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the phrase. And, and quite honestly, there's so many different beliefs around baptism, I really struggled with where to start. We've got infant baptism or pedo-baptism, whichever you prefer. We've got charismatic baptismal beliefs out there that we can talk about. We could take several different paths here. We could talk about the Mormons trying to baptize all the dead by proxy somehow. We could discuss what the Jewish thoughts on baptism were. And I'm going to touch on just a couple of these at a semi-high level. And then I'm going to talk about where we're at as a church. So many of the charismatic churches would have you to believe that this is proof that there is only Jesus and the Trinity is to be denied. Because if you're baptized in Jesus' name, and Jesus' names only, you'll receive forgiveness. There it is. I don't care what Matthew 28 says. I don't care about all these. It says right here. Further, they would have us to believe that the forgiveness of sins only comes through baptism because that's what it says right here. That's what we call baptismal regeneration. And to go one further, they tell you that the gift of the Holy Spirit can only be received through this baptism. And if that baptism is successful, you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be able to prove it to us when you speak in tongues. My personal opinion is that's adding quite a bit to this verse. So I'm going to admit Peter leaves off the Father and the Holy Spirit in the baptism there. The Great Commission tells us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not here. I admit that. But I think this is intentional by Peter. I think he does this on purpose. Up to this point in this sermon, he's talked about nothing, but Jesus is the reason that you're being convicted. Jesus is the only way you're going to be saved. 
Jesus is the reason you need to be baptized. This is not demeaning to the Father or the Holy Spirit. It's not negative toward them. He's just staying on topic here. Up to this point, it's been all about Jesus. It's going to continue to be about Jesus because he wants the crowd to know that Jesus is the reason you're asking this question. He wants them to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter's stress on this throughout the sermon is more than clear. And he's just preventing the crowds from being distracted and keeping them on, on point. I do agree that any time that we may have a baptism up here in this baptistry, which we don't use it nearly enough as far as I'm concerned, but we should be referring to all three. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As far as forgiveness of sins coming through baptism, or what we referred to as baptismal regeneration, this too is false. The scriptures do not teach this anywhere. And, and it may blow some of these people's doors off, but baptism isn't even required for salvation. How on earth can you believe such a thing, Richard? Well, I read my Bible. Who took the thief on the cross down and baptized him and then put him back up there so he could go to heaven because Christ said, this day you'll be in paradise with me. No one did that. No baptism is required in that scenario. I think you should be baptized. Obviously, I think that. There are many other examples to explain, but this one's enough. Baptismal regeneration would be a work-based theology which we sternly and strictly deny. Nothing we can do to add to what God is doing there. As far as receiving the Holy Spirit is concerned, because I got baptized, now I'm going to get to receive the Holy Spirit. Get in your Bible and look that up. That's all over the place. Before, during, after, weeks after. Some people had to be baptized again before they received the Holy Spirit. The Bible is all over the place here on this. And I don't have an answer to all your questions around that. I'm just telling you what it says. And for someone to make a statement that if you get baptized, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then tag on there about speaking in tongues. Here we go, right? So this is a simple dispute. We just read through the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit, right? We covered that just a few verses ago. When did they get baptized? When was their baptism? Was it right before this when they received the Spirit? We, we don't know. I'm sure they probably were, but we don't know. The writer of this, God himself didn't find it important enough to point that out in the most famous recording of the Holy Spirit being poured out in this book. I think that if it was required for that to happen, it would be in this story. Or we'd find it somewhere else. It's just not there. 
And I'm going to call that end of discussion on that. As far as pedo-baptism or infant baptism is concerned, Josh, I remember when we were up at Graham and, and there were a lot of our Presbyterian friends and brothers up there, and uh, one of the professors was just challenging me very heavily about infant baptism, and I said, until you can produce that between these leather bindings, I will not, I will not believe it. You show me that, and we'll have an intelligent conversation about it. Well, we got to talk about the extension of circumcision and the sign of this and the meaning of that. And I said, that's not in here. That's not in here. Doesn't mean the Presbyterians aren't saved. Don't read too much into what I said. But they're just, they're off base there on that one. Here at our church... We've heard it said and explained that baptism is an outward sign of an inward change, and I find that a little bit cliche, but it is true. It's a symbol of internal belief. It's a profession of commitment to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing when you get in the baptismal pool here. In the days that the Bible was being penned, in the days when these things were happening, this was a huge decision. Baptism then was a statement of, I'm no longer connected to this Jewish bunch. I'm going with Jesus now. Lives have been shed for less than that. Baptism today is a symbol of rejecting the ways of the world and accepting the ways of God. Accepting the ways of Christ. Accepting the ways of the Holy Spirit. Accepting what the Bible says. <clears throat> Part of the problem that we have in this verse, there's a preposition here with the, for the word for, F-O-R, for the forgiveness of sins. And I remember us covering, Dr. Blevins covered this up at Graham and did an excellent job with it. And I could remember it, but I couldn't remember it well enough. So here I am digging through the notes I took 20 years ago at Graham Bible College, finally find it here. And I didn't write down enough to remember everything I wanted to remember. So here I am digging through commentaries and I'm digging through. This preposition for is a Greek word that is spelled E-I-S. And I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that. It's is. Y'all try along with me. Um, but it says for the forgiveness of sins. And, and this interpretation is proper in many applications. And even the word for properly understood can be a proper application here. But this word also means the phrase is on the basis of. Because of. Baptisms to be performed on the basis of your forgiveness of sins. The word for, even in the English language, can be used to mean because. Because of your for forgiveness of sins. So you see, we perform the baptism because we have had our sins forgiven. The conversion has occurred. Justification is sealed. And as Christ said, it's finished, right? All we're doing now is saying thank you. And we're making a public statement that this is the new me. The change has happened. 
Ultimately, Peter is interested in seeing the unbelieving listeners forgiven of their sins. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. Absolutely. <clears throat> Come and while baptism is only performed as a, a grateful act, if you will, because of the forgiveness of sin, forgiveness is directly linked to repentance. Acts 3.19, which we've covered, your sins may be wiped away. You see, Jesus served as our scapegoat. Everybody heard about the scapegoat in Leviticus? Aaron was instructed that you shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it out into the wilderness by the hand of a man ready to do this. <clears throat> and the goat shall bear itself, bear on itself all of their iniquities to an isolated land, and he shall send the goat out into the wilderness. This goat carrying the sins of the Israelites out of the community into a land as far away as it can get. Does that sound familiar? As far as the east is from the west, Christ carrying that sacrifice. Now, the Father counted Jesus to have committed all the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. But you have to understand, this did not make Jesus a sinner. It'd be blasphemous for me to stand here and say that, because God cannot sin. But what did happen here is this, this term is a judicial term. It's a legal declaration. And the Father judicially reckoned Jesus to have committed these for those for whom he was giving himself as a substitute. So I'm going to take just a minute right there and say, remember, all this internal salvatory work that's going on, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the response to that question, what shall we do? This is that response. And while this may be most important work for many aspects of the Holy Spirit, it's just a small fraction of what all he does. I'm, I'm going to go through 27 ministries of the Holy Spirit that you can find in that biblical doctrine book, and I don't see one here right now, that many of you have. And if you don't have one, holler at Josh or Jason. I think we may have a copy or two left. There's 27 ministries listed in that book. Quickly, he adopts, he baptizes, he bears witness, he calls to ministry, he convicts, he empowers, he fills, he guarantees, he guards, he helps. He illuminates, indwells, he intercedes, and he leads. He produces fruit. He provides spiritual character, regenerates, he reminds, and he restrains, and he resurrects, reveals truth, and he sanctifies, and he seals. He selects overseers, he sins, he strengthens, he teaches. You'll find this on page 304, I think. Yeah, page 340, sorry. And the last term I'm going to discuss here is this belief that's implied. It's not directly used in these two verses, 
But this term is obviously implied. If we proclaim to be saved, we should know what this word means. We should really ask ourselves, if we had to take a grammar test here this evening and write out what we think the definition of believe is, how would we do? Think about that just for one second, and I'll, I'll read the definition to you. But how would we do? Webster states that believe means to accept as true or real, to have confidence in a promise to suppose or think, to have religious belief. So I told you a minute ago, I was really surprised about how well they did in the definition of repent. But I'm not surprised about how weak these are. To have a religious belief leaves a lot to be desired. How about this one? I found it in Richard's interpretation of the Bible. To know something with so much certainty that one would stake their very lives on it. Your eternity on it. That's what true belief is. And this is what the apostles did, right? All of them but one was executed and he ended up spending a lot of time in prison for his faith. Martyrs over the years that have died and not recanted on their belief in Jesus Christ while they were burned at the stake in front of their families. Beheaded, drawn, and quartered. Still happening today. We have people out there being killed for the cause of Christ today. I found it pretty interesting that the word believe is used in the New American Standard Bible 153 times. On top of that, the word believed in the past tense is used 84 times. The word believer is used four times. Believers in the plural is used eight times. Believes is used 31 times. Word believing is used 13 times. Really seems like God's trying to get his point across on this word, right? So this present evil world has a problem with belief in Christ. This present world does not think, it cannot believe, and is carried away by the latest and most prevalent mob emotion that happens. It exaggerates, it goes to extremes, and does not understand what it says. Obviously, it's blinded by the God of this world. In turn, the lost people of this world will state that they're not a Christian because they do think. That's what they'll say. We do think. I do. And these supposed thinkers are the same ones who call evil good and good evil, Isaiah chapter 5, they're the same ones who state that anyone can decide whether they want to be male or female. They're the same ones that say men can be pregnant. They're the same ones that say it's okay to kill babies just because they're not born yet. They're the same ones that say it's okay for children to be mutilated. The masses in this country today are dismissing Christianity just as the ignorant mobs in Jerusalem dismissed Jesus when they shouted, crucify him. They obviously do not believe in anything but their truth, which is a lie. 
So the real question I'll leave you with this evening is what do you, what do we believe? Are you truly staking your eternity on it? Are you treating Christ as an insurance policy just in case it happens to be right in the end? Or do you really believe? So I urge you this day, search your soul, evaluate your union with Christ. Paul said to build our salvation with fear and trembling. And I think this is what he means. And if you do not know him, make him the Lord of your life before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord, your word has gone forth. Please use it to accomplish all that you set it forth to do. <clears throat> Father, it's an honor to think that you would use the likes of me to do this, and I'm so unworthy. I ask that you protect our congregation as they travel home, protect them as they wander in this world. And I ask, Lord, that you help us, help us to remember the price that Christ has paid for us, Lord. Keep that on our minds. Strengthen us to share your gospel. And I pray this in your son's name and all God's people said, amen.